So, every Monday, when we do one of these Monday kind of shows, I feel some need to explain to you my thinking. And I think I probably explain it a little bit differently every time. But let me try this time. So, uh, what I try to do... I mean, look, in public radio, we, look, we have to get five shows on the air every week. Um, and there's lots of ways you can do that. But, and we've done all of those ways and probably some that nobody else would ever think of, of getting a show on the air. So you can sort of look at it that way. Or you can sort of back off from that and say, what if we thought about that question, getting a show on the air, second, and, and at first asked, what's really going on? What are people really experiencing right now? What's it like to be alive in America or in Connecticut or wherever right now? And that's kind of what I try to do on the weekends. I try to think about that, and I try to think about it in as real a way as I possibly can uh, and as a non-self-deceiving way as I possibly can. Now, it just so happens that ultimately the topic of our show today uh, is about the difficulty somewhat of doing that. Um, and, and let me also say that I kind of lied to you because, which is not the same as gaslighting. Lying and gaslighting are not the same thing, although obviously there's some overlap. Uh, because I said to you in the promos that you heard and if you were on social media that there would be no guest on today's show. Well, it turns out there is going to be a guest for the first uh, segment of the show. Um, and then we're going to take some phone calls. And, and in a way, I'm, the question I'm going to ask you to think about and then talk to me about in the second and third sections of the show today has to do with what you almost might call public mental health. There's a way in which we're living through a time in which collectively our mental health is endangered in a fairly unusual way. I mean, look, our mental health, we go through problems all the time, right? I mean, after 9-11, people had depression, people had anxiety, people had, I had, I had some kind of horrible emotional, spiritual blackness descend over me after 9-11. That's not what I'm talking about right now. What I'm talking about right now is, I think, much, much more rare than that. What I feel is happening right now is, uh, a collective uncertainty about how to agree about reality that's not purely philosophical in nature. And it really does go back to this term, gaslighting. Now, gaslighting comes to us, yes, Howard Sherman, originally from a play, but mostly from a 1944 George Cukor-directed movie uh, starring Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer, uh, and ultimately also Joseph Cotton, who I think we're about to hear here. So, um, and it's, it's about a man who, for nefarious reasons, is trying to get his wife to doubt the reality of her senses. So this is what gaslighting is all about, probably in its most overarching way, uh, trying to get people or a person to doubt that they are perceiving reality correctly, that everything that they've ever relied on to judge the realness of a situation is now up for grabs and in significant doubt. Uh, so here's a little bit from that movie. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter no too much. Or because then he would have control of your property, of this house, and could search in the open instead of the dark like this. A search? What is that a search for? For the things for which Alice Alquist was murdered. Her jewels. I have her jewels? So the jewels you didn't know she had. Famous jewels. Jewels for which he was searching that night when he was frightened away by hearing someone come down the stairs. Someone he never saw. 
a little girl. Me. So that's uh, Joseph Cotton uh, here to inject a little bit of reality or a lot of reality into that situation. And that movie is called Gaslight. And it's since then become uh, a verb. Uh, and a participle, uh, and it's probably being used as every possible part of speech uh, right now. And I think it's happening a bit uh, in our society. But to talk a little bit more about this, uh, we have uh, Dr. Stephanie Moulton-Sarkis, uh, board-certified clinical mental health therapist and the author of several books, including, I don't think it's out until October, but Gaslighting, Recognize Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People and Break Free. Uh, and it will be released in October. I have a right notes. Uh, she also blogs for Psychology Today and the HuffPost. She's blogged about this whole question, too, about what gaslighting is. Um, and she's also written sometimes about how it spills from the personal into the societal. So, uh, Stephanie Sarkis, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. And I apologize for babbling on here at the beginning. Uh, you know more about gaslighting than I do. But maybe you can sort of give, a, give uh, us your thumbnail description of what this is. So gaslighting is a series of manipulation techniques that the goal of it is to have people question their reality, uh, to make them feel like they're going crazy and that what's happening isn't really happening. Uh, and it allows the gaslighter to get away with a lot of things that otherwise the other person would have called them out on a long time ago. Right. So it's not just this, just this it's not identical to lying and it's not identical to moving the goalpost. It's much more of a system of lying, moving the goalpost, doing all kinds of things so that the other person's ability to measure stuff becomes essentially crippled. Correct. This is absolutely systematic. It's done over a period of time with different techniques. So it's not just lying once or twice. This is a, a definite pattern of behavior that you can see throughout a person's life, uh, throughout different relationships. And, and so I, I know that you've, uh, you, you do this in the book and you've done it in your uh, writings. I mean, give people a sense of what some of the basic signs of gaslighting are. One of the things I was just thinking of uh, where Trump said uh, recently, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not happening. Well, that's absolutely gaslighting. Actually, uh, that's a, just so people know that that really did happen. We actually, yes, that we, is a direct quote. We actually have, uh, it. We actually have it for you, Stephanie. Hang on here. Oh, Just okay, stick great. with us. Don't believe the crap you see from these people, the fake news. Just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. All right, there you go. You got it. Now... Run with the ball. That is classic gaslighting. Uh, this is used also in emotionally abusive relationships uh, to say, uh, oh, what you saw me do, what you saw me you know, say to you or do, that, that never happened. You're the one that has a problem perceiving things incorrectly. Uh, it's also uh, calling people names such as fake news uh, or also uh, calling different groups names. Uh, they also, people, gaslighters can also engage in racism, xenophobia. Uh, they can also uh, pick on your family members, uh, your friends. They can isolate you from other people make you feel like you have no power over your circumstances, that you have no right to speak out against it. So it's a very insidious, manipulative uh, technique to keep you under their control. And I would uh, also assume that uh, a gaslighter, one of the hallmarks of a gaslighter is never admitting that you said the thing in the first place. In other words. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Because that's part of maintaining this this kind of an, uh, an illusion. Right. Um, and there's never an apology. The only apology you ever hear is, I'm sorry that you misunderstood what I said, or I'm sorry you got upset that I said this. It's never a thing of, you know, I'm sorry that, that I said this thing and this is how I'm going to fix it. That doesn't happen because the gaslighter feels that they are always in the right and you are always in the wrong. 
Um, so this is, uh, once again, not like piercing your flesh with one artful lie. This is more like wearing you down, right? Right. And it, it gets worse over time. So what happens is you, you start seeing these really outrageous behaviors. And then you see a behavior that's not so bad. But compared to the first behavior, yeah, it, it's still kind of scary, but not as bad. So you kind of let that lesser behavior go. So when you have little behaviors, you kind of just write those off as being normal after a while. So that's the problem is that you start seeing, well, you know, for instance, you know, certain political figures, well, he lied brazenly about this thing, but that's not as serious as this other thing he did. So let's focus on thing B instead of thing A. And that's exactly what the gaslighter wants you to do. They start doing outrageous, flamboyant things to make you forget about the other egregious uh, behaviors that they've done. So, you know, a lot of this can just occur in a one-on-one relationship. In that one-on-one relationship, how does the person, how does Ingrid Bergman get her reality back? Well, what you do as, as a victim of a gaslighter is you start first recognizing that this is gaslighting, that you are a sane individual, you are being confronted with really uh, inappropriate abusive behavior. That's the first thing is to, to know what gaslighting is. Second is to figure out what your exit strategy is. These relationships do not get better. Uh, usually they wind up increasing uh, in intensity. When you try to leave the gaslighter, they usually uh, have a desperation move or they try to drag you back in and promise all the things they're gonna do wonderfully for you. Uh, but when you get back into that relationship again, things get worse uh, to the point where it also increases your chance of lethality, such as in domestic violence situation. Uh, so usually in a domestic violence relationship, uh, you have to get out. That's that's your option. Uh, it's just doing it as safely as possible. Now, on a global scale, that's a little different. Uh, when you have someone that's in power that's gaslighting you know, society, it's almost like uh, right now that, that the U.S. is in an emotionally abusive relationship with the president. So that, that's a whole other level of gaslighting in relationships. Right. And in some ways, by making a, st- a statement as generic as the things that you're seeing, the things you'll be reading are not happening, in a way, that's almost like tearing back the curtain of gaslighting a little bit uh, and, and showing us its bare bones, its scaffolding. Uh, usually, you'd probably say something much more specific, like that thing is not really happening, or don't believe that thing that you just read, that person is not a reliable source, or something like that. But right. in a way, President Trump actually kind of showed us the story structure by saying in such a generic way, discount things that approach your senses on a normal basis. Right. He could not have done gaslighting any more bare bones structurally than that. Uh, And we've seen it ramp up to that. But eventually gaslighters, what happens is they're exposed for what they are. Uh, And by saying exactly that quote, a direct quote, as as everyone heard, uh, that's really typifying for everybody exactly what he's doing. He is aware of uh, the manipulation technique and, and using it to the point where uh, it's very difficult to speak out because people have spoken out, they get consequences. And that's another part of gaslighting is anything the gaslighter sees as you not being 100% loyal to them, they will throw you under the bus. Uh, and we've seen that uh, time and time again from people that have crossed Trump. Uh, and it does not seem to be getting any better. Again, you know, these kind of people, it, this behavior gets worse and worse, and it becomes much more obvious what they're doing. I mean, it seems to me that 
um, in this case, because it's not a one-on-one relationship, none of us is individually married to Trump except for Melania, um, that uh, people fall into different categories. There are people who I think are willingly gaslighted or it's not even really necessary to gaslight them. They already believe that the media is out to get Trump and the things that they read in the media are not true. They, they believe many of the things that he wants to say if he says he had a bigger inaugural crowd than President Obama, then they don't, it doesn't bother them or trouble them that there's visual evidence that that would contradict that. Um, Then you've got some people maybe out on another extreme who, you know, have already dug in pretty closely uh, and and have decided that, you know, that he's not a trustworthy person, that he's a a habitual liar. Um, And then there's this kind of vast middle stuff. And I think of people who are trying to sort things out, you know, trying to have some kind of sensible or responsible reaction to stuff. And I I would imagine they're sort of the most vulnerable group of people. I mean, they really can be swayed or at least confused and disoriented by this technique. Right. And I think we've had presidents that everyone has disagreed with. But I think now we're in a time where we have a president that is is openly, blatantly lying, even when we have evidence proving the opposite. I mean, again, that has happened with some presidents, but this is to an extreme. And I think it's really thrown people off because we have not encountered this type of of drastic kind of behavior before. And it's just like in a relationship where you think, you know, people are generally pretty good people. And then you run into this person that does all this behavior and you think that you did something to cause it. Uh, so I think people are looking at, well, maybe I didn't hear that correctly. Maybe, you know, he, he isn't really like that. And uh, even, you know, seasoned people that, that know these kind of behavioral techniques, it can be really easy to slip into uh, thinking that this is normal. Uh, and also the other point of the gaslighter is to wear you out. So people get so fatigued by this constant confusion and constant chaos that they kind of let stuff go uh, just for their own mental health. And that's exactly what the gaslighter wants you to do. The gaslighter wants you to just ignore some stuff or or let it rest uh, because you're so psychologically worn out. And that's giving them what they want. Well, uh, Stephanie Sarkis, thank you so much for joining us to help set the stage for the rest of our conversation. Uh, Stephanie Sarkis, uh, author of uh, soon to be released in October, Gaslighting, Recognize Manipulative and emotional, Emotionally Abusive People and Break Free. Um, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a break in just a second, but I want to um, set up a conversation with the rest of you because I do try to preserve Mondays. Uh, as a time where we can take some phone calls, which is kind of hard to do on some of our other shows, uh, and uh, let you chime in about how you're feeling. So let me just tell you another thing that made me decide to go in this direction for this show. And that is about, I guess, maybe a year ago. I'm looking over at Betsy Kaplan. We did a show about people who were beginning to report mental health disturbances um, that seemed to be connected to the age of Trump. In other words, they were more anxious, they were more stressed, they were, uh, and therapists were beginning to see that there was something. You know, I wouldn't even call it Trump derangement disorder. That's kind of another thing, and it's that's more of a piece of political rhetoric. But Trump anxiety disorder is something that um, therapists do talk about. People, people who think the world is going to end uh, because people who see him tweet in all caps about Iran and think we're all going to die. Um, people who just see what is happening, uh, the conduct emanating from the White House is such a departure from anything that they're familiar with in their lifetimes that it frightens them. So I, that's sort of how I first started thinking about this. And then it turned out I had two books about gaslighting uh, sitting on my, ta- on my table at home. And I thought, 
there's some reason, you know, there's there's a, another book besides Stephanie's. And that other book is mo- mostly, almost exclusively about personal relationships. The Stephanie Sarkis book is also about how this kind of spills out into society. As you could hear in her talking, she sees the connection. But now I want to just sort of ask you, A, do you feel any of this stuff? I mean, do you feel as though... You, you might be politically outraged by what's happening. You, you might desperately hope for some kind of change. You might be full of regret or anger about what has happened in your country in the last two years. Do you feel like your mental health is a little bit challenged by this? How about that part of you? How's your, how are you feeling that way these days? Um, and do you feel specifically as though you're being gaslighted? Uh, our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I wanted to also just put on the table here. I mean, I think once you start looking for this, once you start watching out for it, you can notice it even more. So, you know, as you know, many of you know, President Trump over the weekend uh, met with um, A.G. Sulzberger, who's the current uh, publisher of The New York Times. Um, and he tweeted about it afterwards. And he said, had a very good, interesting, an interesting meeting, blah, blah, blah. Spent much time talking about the vast amount of fake news being put out by the media and how that fake news has morphed into the phrase enemy of the people. Sad exclamation point. Well, so I want to just point out a couple of things that are going on there that fall into that gaslighting uh, category. One of them is he's essentially trying to gaslight Salzberger in the sense that he's describing a version of their meeting. They spent much time to, they spent much time talking about the vast amounts of fake news being put out by the media. In other words, they spent vast amounts of, much time talking about the vast amounts of fake news put out by people like Salzberger. Well, I don't think that's the case. Uh, <laughs> I don't think Salzberger joined that conversation. I wasn't there. But, but here's the thing that's real gaslighting, and it's a subtle thing, because as Stephanie Sarkis suggested, gaslighting, once again, it isn't a bold lie, usually. It's a, a thousand little lies so persistently told and so intricately connected to one another that you you cease to notice that you're living uh, in this fabric uh, of lies. So he says that they he talked to Sulzberger about the fake news thing and how that fake news has morphed into the phrase enemy of the people. Sad. Well, so that tweet, which is, I mean, there's a lot of gaslighting of, of us that goes on through tweets. So that tweet suggests that the phrase fake news has, well, it says the fake news phrase fake news has morphed into, quote, enemy of the people, unquote, as though that were just sort of happening out there organically. <laughs> you know, I mean, the person who has pushed this concept of enemy of the people uh, as a label slapped on the free press of America is him. But the way that he words this tweet, he sort of suggest he says it has morphed into enemy of the people uh, as though that happened in a way that was not under his control. That was done by one of the, one of his favorite uh, expressions. One of his favorite tropes is people are talking about this. A lot of people are talking about this. A lot of people are saying this. A lot of people are saying that. That never means anything that all that ever means is I'm saying it. And, and, and similarly here. He says, well, that phrase, fake news, it's morphed into enemy of the people. No, he alone <laughs> has done this. Anyway, I want to know about your mental health. Um, also, are you finding that when you see a President Trump tweet that you answer it? 
Um, I mean, you know, he doesn't, <laughs> you know, he doesn't see the answers, right? I've done it too. I've, I've answered it. I've answered it in the second person talking directly to him as though I really were in a conversation with him. Uh, I look back on that and I think that might be a little bit crazy. Um, 860-275-7266. Uh, we are going to take a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk to you. In a way, we knew from the beginning, at least on this show, I think we knew from the beginning, this is going to be a mental health challenge, this period of our lives. Uh, and so not too long after the election, we had uh, John Cleese of Monty Python on um, and uh, he framed it in a very interesting way, a way that I, I thought about as we were beginning to discuss doing the show today, the way that we're doing it. You know, I wrote a couple of books on, co-wrote a couple of books on psychology, psychiatry with a, a famous English psychiatrist called Robin Skinner. And he said something to me once, and I never forgot it. He said, this, when you're with somebody mad, the first thing that you notice is that you think you're going mad. <laughs> and I think that's what's been going on, is that I think people are thinking that they're not quite right anymore, or they must have missed something. Whereas, you know, all this gaslighting, I'm not sure it's as clever as that. It seems to me that he is the classic bull****, that it doesn't really matter very much what he says, because... The words, the facts, they don't really mean anything. It's just to do with conveying a general uh, knowing what's going on and pretending you're smarter than you are. All right. So uh, our number, 860-275-7266. We have um, a bunch of people who are already up on the screen. The preponderance of them are women, too, which is interesting because if you listen to this show regularly, you know that I often have to specifically ask women to call up. Women tend to be... Uh, and this is a very generalized statement, but they tend to be a little bit more reluctant to call talk radio because men are just used to honking off and sounding off and <laughs> thinking everybody's interested in what they have to say. Whereas women, I think, require a, a very specific, specific invitation. Not today. That's who's calling up. But so let's start here with um, Suzanne in Rocky Hill. Hi, Suzanne. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, I wanted to ask a question about how we extricate ourselves from this gaslighting, this situation, and I'm thinking a little bit about 1950s McCarthyism. How did we get out of that? How did we finally cut bait on that and say, we're not going to take it anymore, we're not going to be drawn in by this drama anymore? Can you help with that? Well, you know, it's an interesting point, and, and uh, people often mention Joseph P. Welch in that context. He's the guy who said, uh, you know, at last, sir, have you no shame? Um, and that really wasn't a turning point. We've kind of in our own mind, in our collective um, historical memory, uh, we've made that into a turning point where somebody said that thing and it was almost like an incantation and it turned things around. And I think, first of all, that that isn't what happened. Uh, I mean, he did say that, but it, it didn't turn things around. I, I actually think that if you look at the history of these things, for the most part, what happens is 
you know, I mean, there's the old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, that ultimately what happens is that reality catches up. I mean, in these public things, I think Stephanie is still with us. And I, I think with if you're just in a relationship with somebody like this, then reality often doesn't get a chance to catch up. Uh, but here, ultimately, uh, I do feel as though reality uh, for people who, who want to pay attention to reality, reality will catch up. I mean, maybe a better example would be Watergate. Uh, in, in the case of Watergate, you know, it really wasn't so much the Washington Post. It wasn't uh, necessarily the, the heroic and valiant work of the press. Not that there wasn't heroic and valiant work by the press, but it really was ultimately the letter that James McCord uh, wrote to Judge Sirica uh, that started a process, a process that led to judicial procedures and, and to led to congressional procedures. Um, ultimately, probably, you know, the, everything that we do, including having conversations like this one, Suzanne, I think is all to the good. Yes, and, uh. and the other thing is the press does have this open invitation, if they will take it, not to run after all of these things, but rather to perhaps not show up um, at press conferences, but pay attention and then take down all the details, just like you were sharing about what has been said, and then fact check it. And then in a non-hysterical way, start sharing just a little bit, little bit. So what happens is, even though the information is getting out, it's not an argument. It's like, this is... This is what it is, very simply, very uh, level-headedly, then move on. Don't show up at the helicopters in the planes when POTUS and FLOTUS are doing stuff. Just watch and share the facts. Um, th- first of all, thank you for that suggestion, Suzanne. I can talk about it a little bit. It's something that um, a lot of press critics like Jay Rosen uh, in particular have been making. But we do have um, our our expert here on, on gaslighting, So, uh, and she's still with us. So, uh, Stephanie, do you want to comment on that? Sure. I think one of the ways that we can really uh, help ourselves, and, and also with journalism too— Journalists, we and I speak from having a degree in journalism, uh, we can only say so many things without uh, possibly libeling someone or slandering them. Uh, so we have to be really careful with that. And we're also trained to be very factual and not opinionated. And I think that gets tricky for a lot of journalists trying to find the line between informing and then maybe you know getting a little too much kind of what I call op-ed, uh, we're giving your opinion. But I think it's perfectly acceptable to present, this is what happened, but this is what we know. These are the verifiable facts, which are not opinions. And I think it's perfectly acceptable to call out when something is, is an egregious, uh, I guess, gap between the reality and the, and the truth, uh, so uh, or what he said. So I, I think it's appropriate. I think another thing we can we can deal with is is call it out ourselves too. Uh, when we see something that doesn't look appropriate, to you know let people know. Uh, you know, let people know, like like your uh, your senators, your representatives, say you know this is what's happening. This is not acceptable. It's not normal, and we need to find a way to make it stop. You know, one of the more influential guests we've had during this time, we've had her quite a few times now, is Sarah Kenzior. And I think one of the things that Sarah Kenzior says is keep a journal, Um, write down stuff. Just as a citizen, keep a journal. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it would be very useful in a purely intrapersonal uh, gaslighting relationship, but but just keep a journal, write stuff down so that you know, so that you could go back and look for yourself and say, yes, on day X, two and a half months ago, this is what was said. This was what was promised. We were assured that X, Y, and Z were the case uh, so that you don't have to really depend on anybody else for your historical memory. You can actually write it down yourself uh, because otherwise, as John Cleese was suggesting, you'll start to think that you are going mad. 
that. All right. So um, going back to the calls here, uh, let's go to uh, Rodion. I hope I'm saying that correctly on a cell phone. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. Thank you. Um, I wanted to say that this is what what was talked about is gaslighting on an interpersonal base. Hmm. Only halfway slides over into the political scene. Um, when you gaslight somebody, you're convincing them to doubt their own feelings. When Trump is playing to his base, he is affirming their feelings. They, th- they are thinking, I was right after all. And then what he does is he says things that can totally inflame the left, and they start acting hysterical. And he says to his base, look, see, they're hysterical, just like you thought. Right. I think we made that point earlier that that, you know, that there are different receptors uh, of his rhetoric. And the, as, as you say, and as I said earlier, the people who believe this stuff to begin with, yes, they're, they're just affirming stuff that they already thought. Then there's people way over uh, on the other side who would never believe anything he said anyway. And then there's people in the middle. And, and Stephanie, you know, one thing about that is the people in the middle, they're the people struggling with questions of stability, uh, of the stability of reality, uh, trying to figure out what's real and what's not. They're the most vulnerable to to gaslighting, and they're the ones at which gaslighting are, is directed. Absolutely. I think it's really important to have open dialogue with people that are that are kind of on the fence or in the middle and talk to them about, you know, what is their feeling about this? You know, what are their, um, I guess, their cognitive, uh, what's their cognitive dissonance, meaning you know, what's happening that their values are conflicting with what they're hearing. And I think we can do some gentle, loving confrontation with people, uh, but also be prepared that sometimes it makes people dig in further to their stance. But I think it's really important just to listen. Um, I've talked to people that are pretty reasonable people, and I talk to them, you know, honestly, why did you vote for this person? Because it's not making a lot of sense to me. And they've come up with pretty valid reasons. Uh, they were reasons that they were lied to about, but still pretty valid reasons. So I think it's really important to talk to those people that are kind of on the fence, especially with mid term elections coming up, a really good time to talk with people about uh, maybe talking to them just gently about what's going on, that there's a difference between what the reality is and what they're being presented with. The, uh, the We've said this also other times in the past, exactly what you're saying now, Stephanie, that one thing that I say is it's fine for you to, to decide that President Donald J. Trump is a horrible person. You shouldn't assume that 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 the others, the 60 million plus people who voted for him, are all all horrible people. They may have had reasons to vote for him that seemed very plausible to them and not necessarily based in hatred. I mean, Hillary Clinton famously was talking about the basket of deplorables, but she made a point in that speech of saying, as far as she was concerned, that was somewhere around half of the people who were supporting Trump. The other ones had reasons that seemed valid to them, and I, I think it is important not to assume that just because somebody supports or has voted for Trump that that person is a horrible person. Uh, Here's Abigail in West Hartford. Uh, Abigail, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to clarify or add to the definition of gaslighting. I've been thinking about it a lot, and it adds to extricating yourself. And I think um, the gaslighting happens when you're building a relationship you build trust between people, and you, um, and when you find yourself in a relationship where someone's demanding that you demonstrate loyalty rather than doing the work to build trust and building that shared reality, so they demand that you show loyalty to their point of view and don't respect the gap between perhaps your two perceptions, that would be a flag, right? Um, so what gaslighting is, is the person uses the other person's desire to build trust 
and a culture within the relationship of trust to, um, to, to undermine their sense of confidence. I also don't think it's necessarily like conscious strategic. I think it often comes from someone's the perpetrators or the person's deep insecurity or a deep wound. Um, and so then one other point in extricating is if you are far down the road with that relationship, just have everything documented. Right. As people have mentioned. So yes, my I, two cents worth. Yeah. I, keeping a journal in one of those relationships sounds like a really good idea, too. Keeping a journal in the relationship we're having right now with the current administration also seems uh, like a good idea. Um, you know, uh, Stephanie Sarkis, that's an interesting point that she's making. And once again, it probably has interpersonal as well as societal implications right now. The people who do the gaslighting, it's not that they went out and bought your book or watched the George Cukor movie and thought, hey, I'm going to do that. They they are damaged units probably in their own way. Uh, and this is how they've decided to cope with reality uh, by restructuring reality to suit their purposes. I think there's a continuum of gaslighting. We have people that deliberately, like dictators, that deliberately do these things uh, to keep people off kilter. But then, yeah, there are also people that this they've learned this as an unhealthy coping mechanism or how you relate to people or due to whatever past thing they went through that they're using this as a control measure instead of building normal emotional intimacy. Uh, either way, they're still responsible for their behavior and, and it's uh, not acceptable. And I think that's what we need to focus on is that regardless of how the person got there, no one should tolerate this kind of behavior. Um, let's grab a call from Sarah in Vernon. Uh, then we'll take a break. We'll take some more calls on the other side of that, too. Hi, Sarah. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so you guys have kind of been getting at it, but I think that the hard part with distinguishing this gaslighting for some people is that media does tend to spin stories. You know, So I think Trump is really capitalizing on that fact and the weariness that certain people have towards media. And so I don't really know if your guest has a way to kind of reconcile that. It's an interesting question. While uh, while, um, Stephanie is thinking about that, Sarah, I want to go back to what one of the other callers said a few minutes ago. Don't cover the helicopter landings. Don't necessarily go to the press conferences. Ultimately, it's, it's there's a problem. There's a couple of problems. One of them is the media is kind of obligated to go. The press is obligated to go to that stuff. I don't think that we can completely restructure our relationship with the White House. And I mean, Jay Rosen, for example, says, send the interns. If they're just going to lie to you at the White House briefing, send the interns. But that kind of plays into what you're talking about, Sarah, which is that there's a lot of people who think that if the if the press acts in a completely dismissive way towards the White House and decides that everything that Sarah Sanders says is a lie. So why pay any attention to it? And everything that Kellyanne Conway says is deceptive spin. So we're just going to ignore it all and not report on it. That becomes kind of a problem, too. You don't want to redefine the press's mission so much that it begins to create confirmation bias, begins to, oh, well, you can see they, you know, they're not even going to give the Trump administration a chance to tell their story. But I do think one thing that's helpful is like, you know, just even going over over that Sulzberger tweet, that moment in the in the tweet where President Trump says the term fake news has morphed into enemy of the people when the reality is, you no, know, he just started saying enemy of the people. It didn't morph into it in, in some kind of organic way where a lot of people adopted his thinking about it. Um, just those little things that, no, let's just stop a second. It didn't morph. You just started saying something different. I think that's probably worth doing. 
Um, all right, but let's let's throw it back over to uh, Dr. Stephanie Sarkis. How do you react to all that? Sure. Um, so when you're talking about the spinning of the media, I think that um, you know, again, uh, when as journalists, people say this is what he said. This is what the actual facts are. This is what we have documented. I think that helps a lot. And that's not spinning uh, when you have verifiable facts. And also gaslighters kind of bank on the fact that uh, legitimate media are going to back off and not cover stuff so he can get away with more. So that's the problem is that if you back off of covering it, he that's giving him exactly what he wants. Uh, he wants it so that, you know, only, you know, certain networks show up at his press conferences because then he can continue his own narrative. Uh, so it's pretty tricky. Uh, but again, you know, the more that people are presented with facts and also people that are listening and they're wondering, well, I don't know about that. Go ahead and do your own digging on facts. You know, look at uh, credible news sources. Uh, see if they have a background in fact checking. And you'll see that it's pretty clear to tell who's a non-legitimate news source from who's legitimate. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of the whole Russian infiltration bots was that to polarize people and to make them question, you know, that what's called the fourth estate or that that press uh, influence. That's one of the purposes of it is to is to discredit what is credible and to credit what is not credible. So again, if you people if the news pr backs off of what he's doing, that's falling right into what Trump wants. Um, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, if Joseph Cotton doesn't show up, um, Ingrid Bergman's just stuck with a situation that she's not, not likely to get out of. So not to make it all about the movie, but the press kind of has to be Joseph Cotton in a way saying, nope, nope, that's not what's happening here. You're not going crazy. Something else is happening. There's a systematic attempt to make you think that you're going crazy. Um, so I, I think we can't necessarily step away from that, although maybe we shouldn't seem too feverish uh, about uh, the necessity of doing it. All right, let's take another quick break here. We'll come back. We'll take more of your phone calls. 860-275-7266. Special shout out. Is Zandra in there doing the phone? Is that who's doing the phones today? Oh, it's Betsy's in there doing the phones. Special shout out to Betsy Kaplan then. These uh, phone shows are hard to do for the person taking the calls. You find my trigger, then you blame my gun. Yeah, when I think of it, my fingers turn to fists. I never did anything to you. Kion, that music means it's time for you to do the credits. I already did them. I did them a couple minutes ago. Mm, that's impossible. I've been sitting right here. You must have gone into like a fugue state. Come to think of it, you do have a kind of a funny look in your eyes. I did? Yeah, I was doing the credits and I remember thinking, it's almost as if Pants doesn't even hear me. I better get some kind of checkup. Well, I mean, if it makes you feel better, I could do them again. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, Ira Glass, and me, Kion Wolf. Uh, Ira Glass was here? What? He said hello to you. We also had help from our interns, Xander Ellen and Zach Efron. He stole your dreadlocks. I gave Zach Efron my dreadlocks. Bill Curry did not appear on this show today. Nobody played the part of Bill Curry. No Bill Curry. Move along now, people. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our salute to hats. And now...
Back to Colin. It does sound like she's gaslighting us. All right, so we uh, I, I threw this out here as a topic for the show today. Um, the notion that we are living in a gaslighted reality where, where in fact, this fabric uh, of distortions uh, has reached a point where people have a lot of trouble um, sorting out the real from the false, where there really is kind of, in, instead of evaluating reality by saying, okay, that specific thing is a lie, the accretion of these lies, and the Washington Post is kind of thousands of lies. It, it's no longer a problem of lying. It's a problem of whether or not people can trust their normal means of verifying reality, uh, the, the senses and the common sense that they typically use to figure out whether things are real or not. Uh, and, and it begins to reach a point where it's done so persistently and so subtly and at such a finely grained level uh, that they're less confident uh, that they completely understand what's going on. All right. Uh, we've been lucky enough to have a lot of fine women callers. That doesn't mean we don't have fine men callers, too. We do. Uh, let's go to Robert in Woodbury. Hi, Robert. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, I'm good. I, I, I wanted to piggyback on on, uh, on Stephanie's uh, comments before. It seems like this kind of thing happens a lot in, um, in intimate relationships, marriages, uh, you know, um, uh, you know uh, those kinds of things, siblings, families, and so on, and it's and it's confusing in that setting, and so there's a distance between that and the, the political arena, you know, the social arena. And I was thinking, you know, I like to think of myself as a as a participant in in my in my society as a as a a voter, as an American, as a citizen. Um, I, I take some um, I, I, I own some <clears throat> responsibility, having voted um, uh, not for Trump, Trump, mm -hmm. but for Jill Stein, actually. Um, so I, I bear some shame around that. But I, um, but but that identity as as a as a participant. I mean, I kind of own this, right? So I, if I get married to somebody, I kind of own my part in the relationship. And if it gets really crazy. And I get really confused that I can't really tell what's real and what's not. Um, one of the things that keeps me in that is that I I kind of I kind of joined up, and I think that that sense of, of being part of um, and, and and owning my citizenship and owning my my identity as a voter and having some responsibility, whether I voted for Trump or not, in 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 having in being part of this thing kind of traps me, not me personally so much, I mean, I, I wrestle with it too, but it traps me in that, in that sense, I ought to be able to make sense of this. Right. Um, and, 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 and if I can't, I, I get, I, I can't extricate myself from it. And that creates that so, Robert, I'm going to, uh, first of all, we still, I think, do have Dr. Stephanie Sarkis here, uh, who's the author of Gaslighting, Recognize uh, Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People. Um, we'll get to her in just a second. But before I turn you over to a clinician, uh, I'll be your priest for a second and say, Ego te absolvo, right? Shame is such an incredibly powerful thing anyway. Uh, shame and guilt. So you're really not obligated when you show up to vote, to do anything other than to vote for the best candidate, the person that you have 
presumably as a reasonably educated person, a person who's made a conscientious effort to understand the the landscape and the and the population of that landscape, you're obligated to make the best effort you can to vote. So yeah, you voted for Jill Stein. Not what I did. Not what I would have done in that situation. But I don't think people should walk around with tremendous amounts of shame about that. Because we have enough shame in our lives anyway. And Dr. Stephanie Sarkis, I would also assume that's a big portion of the plight of the gaslighted person in any gaslighting relationship is that part of the madness that's visited on them is shame that somehow or other they are responsible for whatever set of feelings they're having. Absolutely. And I cannot tell you the number of people that are either in relationships with a gaslighter or also coming in because they're having Trump issues uh, that have said to me, you know, did I bring this upon myself because I voted for a third party candidate or I voted for him or am I in this relationship because this is what I chose and I should have known? I think it's important to note, though, that we didn't know things were going to be at this point back in November. Uh, we had no idea things were going to turn. Even I thought, well, maybe this is just kind of show he's doing when he's elected. Maybe things he'll calm down and go, oh, no, I was moderate. No problem. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of people thought that. Um, so I think it, that's an issue of you know where you're blaming yourself as kind of the victim. Uh, and again, this is done in a slow, insidious way. So even for mental health clinicians, a lot of them you know, have a hard time recognizing this pattern of behavior when they're in a gaslighting relationship. So if you have people that are trained, graduate school trained in uh, in psychotherapy, and they have a hard time recognizing these type of relationships. I mean, that tells you a lot about how uh, manipulative gaslighters are and make you question your own reality. And they make you feel like you're the one with guilt right. and that you're the one that's responsible when in fact you're not. And when you feel like that, it's very immobilizing and it's really hard to be proactive. Right. So like you said, you know, I think the first thing we need to forgive ourselves. And again, we did not know that things were going to be at this point back then. Right. You didn't do anything bad, Rod, Robert. I mean, like if we had a little conversation sometime in late October, I would have talked, tried to talk you out of doing this. But you didn't do anything bad. You thought you were doing the right thing. Uh, here's uh, Mary and Kent. Hi, Mary. Hi. How are you, Colin? I'm fine. Um, my comment is just the way this has affected my life, that uh, sometimes I feel physically ill because I read the news and I feel like if I'm not paying attention, that uh, worse things will happen. Um, I've picketed in downtown Kent for hundreds of hours with my picket sign by myself, <laughs> and uh, it makes me feel like I'm actually doing something to make a change. And in my own family, uh, family of seven, I had my brother came and stay with me with his wife, and, and he admonished me that you're the only Democrat in the family. How can you think that way? Like there was, I had a disease. <laughs> so it just, it, it, it is upsetting on a daily basis. My husband's trying to get me not to read so much news, but it's hard not to. You know, this is, um, Stephanie, we're probably almost out of time here, but um, uh, Mary's call is interesting, too, because there's a sort of a concentric r- r- rings. It's like it's like a rock uh, thrown into a lake, you know? I mean, you, on the one hand, have maybe the outer rings, the relationship between you uh, and the president and, and how you feel your own reality is being distorted. But Mary's also describing something that I'm guessing as a clinician you've run into, too, which is that if you and members of your family have completely different versions of reality, that turns into a a whole different set of stressors. 
Yes, and that's very polarizing. And I think it's important to look at you know what your values are, and they may be different than your family's, and that's completely okay. Uh, and it's okay to also say to people, hey, you know what? How about we leave this you know somewhere else? Let's not talk about this because you and I are not going to change where we're coming from with this. Uh, you can love someone, but really not like where they're associated politically, and that's completely okay. And it's completely okay to say, you know what? We're not going to talk about this. It's also okay to take a break from watching the news. Sometimes you can still be informed without getting too engrossed in it as well. It's perfectly okay to take a step back and, and kind of regroup and take maybe a mental health day, what I call emotional snow day, uh, where you can just kind of uh, you know, do something that's just kind of separated from the news and you can always come back to it. Right. I mean, you should never take a break from NPR. But other than that, um, but Mary, I, would, I, I was thinking the same thing that Stephanie just said when you were talking, which is you, you don't have the power by by giving up the news for a couple of weeks, by not reading the New York Times, by not listening to public radio, uh, you, you don't have the ability to cause bad things to happen. I mean, in other words, uh, you're not the reason that kids got separated from their parents at the border. It didn't make any difference whether you were paying attention or not. Ultimately, you're paying attention long term, and that's really important and valuable. But uh, we can all get into that kind of magical thinking. Oh, I wasn't watching. <laughs> I wasn't watching, and they started doing this other horrible thing. All right, so first of all, special thanks to uh, Dr. Stephanie Sarkis. I have like a little wrapping up thing I'm going to say, but special thanks to Dr. Stephanie uh, Sarkis, uh, whose book uh, coming out in October is Gaslighting, Recognize Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People and Break Free. Um, I want to come back to, I think it was Robert, uh, what he said, because it's something I've been thinking a lot about earlier today in a completely different context, which is shame. You know, shame is such an incredibly powerful emotion, and because it's shame, it's the thing we have the hardest time talking about. In other words, by definition, right? If you're ashamed of something, if, you're, if you have shame living inside you, it'll be the last thing that you share, even with people around you whom you trust. I, I mean, I'm saying this, I'm kind of setting up a show that we're doing on Thursday, which I'm not quite 100% ready to explain to you, but it's, we're working on a show that's a very deeply personal show for me. Um, and I was talking today to a therapist who is going to be one of the guests on this show, and I talked about shame. Uh, and, and it's true that we carry these things around, and they're not, in many cases, our whole relationship to those things as shameful is completely irrational. We don't have a rational basis for feeling the shame that we have. It got in there. It, it's like a little cat that slipped in the door when we, when we weren't watching, and it's taken up residence on the sofa of our minds. And, and it's, uh, it's, the only cure is telling people. The only cure is telling a person what you're ashamed of, that you, you have this terrible feeling of shame. And half the time, the minute it gets out of your mouth, it's, it sounds crazy that it was ever bothering you to begin with. Uh, but it's not crazy. It's just the way we're wired. So I don't know. When he was talking about you know feeling ashamed, that was that said something to me too. It's kind of like go tell somebody about that, right? Go call your public radio station and talk on the air about it. That's that's always the best cure. Uh, but don't let it. It just it gets more powerful if you don't do something. <laughs> 